Father God, we want to come before you this morning and just thank you for being able to be in this space together. Uh, Lord, we, we pray that uh, whatever we bring through the doors, Lord, that we meet you, uh, whether we come in with anxiety or we come in with frustrations or troubles or hurts, uh, we pray that your spirit meet us in that place and comfort us, give us the peace that transcends understanding, uh, give us wisdom to make it through the difficult situations we're in or whatever, or, or just mourn with us if our hearts are broken. God, we just pray that each person that comes in in that space today has an experience with your presence and is drawn closer to you in that. Lord, for those who come in rejoicing, Lord, we pray that we can feel the energy and love that you have for us rejoicing with us. God, we pray that, that we can experience your presence in that way and been drawn into a deeper love for you uh, in, that, in that space as well. God, as we approach your scripture now and as we look at uh, the way that you've interacted with, with your people, uh, with your church throughout the years, uh, Lord, we pray that we gain a deeper understanding of who you are, uh, for the deep, reckless love that you have for each of us, uh, and for how that love inspires us and motivates us into a deeper and more passionate love for each other. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right, so if you've been with us through, the, through the, this new year, year here, we've been working our way through a series that we've been calling The Undivided Self. As we realize that in many of our lives, we have these different spheres or sectors in which uh, we, have, we feel like we might have to function a little bit differently. Uh, we, we began by just opening it up, talking about how, for many of us, we can view the world in two, two frames. So we can view it as secular and spiritual, and those things being different. Uh, some one of the jokes we've been telling is, do you... Do you act differently when you're driving in the car than when you do here sitting, at, sitting here on Sunday morning? Are you quicker to curse at somebody on your car than you would be on Sunday morning? I hope so, because I don't want us to curse at each other here, uh, but hopefully we don't do it in either spot, right? We talked about how those two spheres can feel like they're different, but, but what the Bible teaches us is that everything is spiritual. It's in this space of saying that our lives are not meant to be se segregated into two separate sections where we do our religious stuff and we do the rest of our stuff, but instead we integrate our lives so both are the same. We move from there to talk about what that looks like in different spheres. So we, we talked about what it looks like at home by looking at the, the relationship between Paul and Timothy where Paul understands that Timothy, uh, he's been, that Timothy has a special kind of relationship with him. And we saw throughout the scripture almost like a father and son. Paul, in a couple different places in the Bible, refers to Timothy as his spiritual son. Uh, but not in the way, but in a way like he's actually fathering him, mentoring him through that. We see him go to get him um, from Lystra and those kinds of things. And so we talked about at home, we first, we first start thinking about what our role is and why that matters. And then we saw how Paul then models the Christian life for Timothy, that he lives in the kind of way that Timothy can see what it's supposed to look like, and we're called to do that at home as well. And then finally, we talked about how we need to, that we are going to make mistakes, and so we need the community around us in that space. A couple weeks ago, then we talked about what it means to be a good friend, an encourager. We looked at the relationship between Paul and Barnabas. Right? We, we saw that Paul might not become Paul if Barnabas doesn't actually encourage him uh, to move into that space. Barnabas is the one who introduces Paul to the disciples, the apostles. Barnabas is the one who goes and gets Paul when he's been sidelined and bring him back into his Gentile ministry. We talked about how important it is to be able to see and know each other and encourage us in that way. Last week, we talked about what that looks like in our neighborhoods and how we, how we care for each other well in that space, how we can, we can live out in incarnate faith so that when people see us, they, 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 they see that there might be something different and are drawn to it. <clears throat> 
So for each sermon series, uh, our, our team produces a blueprint of what we're going to be talking about in these messages. We agree on our passage, we agree on our takeaway, and then there's one more thing. Uh, we, we agree on what we call the tension, right? We, we ask first, what's the tension in the text? What, what that means is, what's the thing that feels strange or might be hard to understand with whatever text we're looking at? Uh, what's a character wrestling with or how do we understand what's going on? And we, that's why we talk about the context so often. And we agree on what we're going to do there. We also then secondly ask the question, where does that produce tension in our lives individually? How do I, for something like, how do I pray? Or how do I forgive that person? How do I be a disciple at home or with friends? You get it. There's the tension in this space of how do I actually apply this thing that we're looking at into my, uh, in my day-to-day life? Now, some weeks, it's easier to build that tension than others. And this week is a week in which it was easy. Uh, <clears throat> when I was preparing for this week's message, as I often do when I'm thinking about the tension that we experience in our lives, I just Googled one version of the question we're asking today, just to see what people have written about. This week, I simply Googled, are you a different person at work than you are at home? And I was blown away by how many results that I got. Search result produced more results than I can read in a week or a month or even a year because so many people are wrestling with that question. Whether they're believers or not believers didn't matter. Questions plastered all over the internet. It's clear that many people wrestle with the feeling that the work version of themselves is different from the home or play or church version of themselves. And, it, and it, the interesting thing is not only do they recognize that, that, that discrepancy in their life, it's concerning to a lot of people. Most of what I read, just anecdotally, was, uh, what do I do with that? Because it's unsettling. It feels like the person I am here at work is different than the one I am at home, and I don't know how to reconcile the two. Like I said, it didn't seem to matter what field we're talking about, whether it was on the construction site or in the boardroom, whether it was the service industry or the manufacturing line, whether it's at school or church, the tension between work self, play self, church self was prevalent in all of those spaces. And so what we're going to do today is try to explore why that may be. Why is work or school so often the place we have the hardest time being consistent? How do we live as followers of Jesus in the many different work or school environments we find ourselves in? And one of the ways we're going to try to get at that today is actually look at three different people in the Bible. First, we, as we've been doing each week, we're going to look at the relationship between Paul and this week someone named Lydia, which we'll look at her first. Uh, second, we're going, to then, we're going to compare and contrast that to Jesus' interaction with a guy named Zacchaeus. And then finally, we're going to look at Jesus' interaction with Matthew, found in the book of Matthew, right? The guy that wrote that one. Uh, so each... Each of these ones are going to be a little different in length, don't worry. The first one's much longer than the last two, but we'll do some comparisons in that way. So let's get started with that. <clears throat> For the last two weeks, we've been projectorless. If, you, if you've been here with us, you know that we're not anymore. That's good. Woo. Well, hopefully we can get our... This is, a, this is a, uh, a rental, so it's bigger if you've noticed that, but we'll get our other one back probably. But a couple of you said after last week being projectorless for two weeks that I had to include extra maps this week, so I did. There you go. So we've got a few of those. <laughs> and so today we start in a little town called Thyatira. So if we can throw up that first map here. There's two circles here. We're going to Don't worry about the one on top that says Philippi right now. We're going to talk about that in a second. Uh, right now we're on the one on the, on the, on the right here. Um, 
We're going to talk about a town called Thyatira, which, uh, has, which surprisingly makes its mark on the Bible in a couple of different places. Um, the, one of the most prominent places we read about Thyatira is actually in the book of Revelation. Uh, if, at the beginning of the book of Revelation, which is the very last book in the Bible, uh, Paul, or John writes seven letters to seven churches in the region here. And one of those churches is the church in Thyatira. The interesting thing is that Thyatira is actually the smallest of those seven churches pretty, by quite a bit. At this time, the population of Thyatira was only around 25,000 people, uh, which in the ancient world doesn't mean it's a small city necessarily, but it's definitely not a huge one either. So Thyatira was small, but it was a significant city in the ancient world. As you can see, it's located inland, which uh, most of your major cities are near the water. Like you can see Philippi there, it's near the water. You can also see on this map, Thessalonica or Athens is on the water, Ephesus is on the water. Usually your biggest cities were on the water. Uh, but, Thi uh, but Thyatira is not. Actually, in this map, part of the reason we picked this map is you can see that in the, on maps in, in terms of size, it's not even big enough to get a little dot, right? So you see all these other cities named, but not Thyatira. It's too small for that. But it is significant in the ancient world because, uh, because well, first, it's, it's an interesting city because, like I said, it's located inland. It also does not have any natural protection. So usually you build your city by the water, so one side is protected because of water, or you build it by some mountains on the back so that you, you only have to protect yourself one way, uh, not from all ways around. Thyatira did not have natural protections. So it's located inland off of a major water source like the Mediterranean. It was by a river, but that's different. Uh, without natural protections as well. And so the question then is, why would you build a city in a location that was difficult to defend in a world filled with conquering armies? And my guess is some of you have already made this jump because it's located right in the center of multiple trade routes. So if you're not going to have natural protection, if you're going to take that risk, you'll do it if you think you can make a whole bunch of money. And that's what Thyatira does. Thyatira is located, located right in the smack, of a, smack in the middle of a number of trade routes. If you're traveling, uh, you, travel, you travel through Thyatira when you're going to many different places to trade. If you're coming from west to east, you'll, down into that region, you'll travel through Thyatira there. Uh, in so many different places where you're trying to travel to either Asia or Africa or back to Europe, you'll come through Thyatira. It's a crossroads of trade in so many different ways. Actually, it was so focused on trade that archaeologists have found more trade guilds in the, in the small city of Thyatira than any other contemporary city in the Roman, Roman province of Asia. Uh, there, are, there were guilds to almost every one of the major trades uh, in, in the ancient world. People traveling around the world could buy the supplies and good they, goods they needed in Thyatira. We found wool workers' guilds. We found tanner, tanner or leather workers' guilds. We found linen weavers, bakers, shoemakers, coppersmiths, and we could go on and on and on. All of these trade guilds were focused in Thyatira right there. Now, each of these guilds had their patron deity as well, so we've been able to see that in the city. Um, the, uh, and all of, and so every single one of those guilds then would have all of their proceedings and feasts began by honoring and praying homage to the god or goddess of their particular trade. Now, not only was the city filled with trade guilds, it also had two natural resources that added to the wealth of the city. Uh, the first, they had the best bronze smelters in the world. Uh, 
And the second was they had world-famous textile dryers. Or dyers, not dryers. That would be weird. Dyers. Like, to dye your textiles. Um, so the, in, the, in the ancient world, then the value of bronze is self-explanatory. It can be used in a number of different things, both for farming equipment, but probably more so for um, military equipment. That, that, uh, the value of bronze is self-explanatory, but what was their deal with dye? You see, around the region of Thyatira was a tree with a taproot known as the matter root. Uh, the root, when harvested, could be used to create a kind of reddish-purple dye, known as, now, which we now know as Turkish red. That's the color. Um, it leans a little bit towards the red side, but did have a purplish hue to it. Uh, purple in the ancient world was a sign of high rank or royalty because of the high cost in obtaining this particular dye. And so Thyatira builds this entire industry based on being able to dye textiles a number of different colors, but in particular, this royal blue color, that, or this royal red, reddish-purple color that was incredibly valuable in the ancient world. This created a unique niche uh, that created the ma a massive trade base for this little town. We actually found a number of their minted coins to commemorate the two strongest commodities. So if you see this, it's kind of hard to see, but in the middle there, you'll see uh, it's a, the coin is made of bronze, so that already uh, portrays the, their, their, their ability to, to smith out of bronze. And again, it's really hard to see, but if you look in there, you'll see the tree, and underneath are the places where you would get your matter roots. So the, it's, it's not super common for cities to mint their own coins all the time, but Thyatira could. Just shows the wealth and the significance of Thyatira, even with the small size on the, in the ancient world. So then the question is, why are we talking about this city? Why are we talking about Thyatira for this morning? Um, if, you, if you have a Bible and you want to follow along with me, turn to Acts 16. Acts 16. Which says this. Acts 16, starting at verse 9. During the night, Paul had a vision of a, man of, the, of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to, he got, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, and concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we went out to the sea and sailed straight for um, Samothrace, and the next day we went to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi a Roman colony and a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to, the, to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you can consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So here's the story of Lydia. And like all the stories we've kind of looked at, even though she has a significant role to play in the early church, she doesn't get a lot of page time, similar to Timothy and Barnabas. But let's see if we can learn a few things here from her story. In this story, what we meet is we meet, we meet Lydia who is identified by her successful business, right? The fact that the Bible chooses to identify her as a dealer of purple cloth means that part of how she's seen in that particular part of the world is as a purple cloth salesman, as someone who has, been, has a successful business. <clears throat> We're also told that she came from Thyatira, 
We're told that she's rich enough to have the resources to hold a church party in her house. That's a big deal, right? So she's in, she, her family's baptized, and then she invites Paul, and, uh, Paul to come stay with her in that space. The text also alludes to her being the breadwinner of her home, which is rare in the ancient world. The place that she's located, the kind of conversations she had, and the fact that she's the one that calls the shots of who comes over and where, uh, all is a little unique for the ancient world. We're also told that she's a worshiper of God and that Paul is able to help her take a next step in her faith. In this short story, we see Lydia is able to leverage her resources to host, and we will see eventually to become a significant church leader in the city of Philippi. But it also raises a really important question. Why is she in Philippi? If we can throw the map back up one more time... We're told in the scripture itself that she's originally from Thyatira, which is the circle on the right there. But in this particular story, we're up in Philippi. Not super, super far away, but also, especially if you're walking, not that close either, right? We've already talked about what the economic conditions in Thyatira look like. It's a place filled with trade guilds. It is the it's the, the central spot to get the purple dye, to make the purple cloth that she's selling. Why isn't she still there? If you were going to be a successful business person selling purple cloth, clearly able to do it in Philippi, wouldn't you, and you're originally from Thyatira, wouldn't you stay there? Now, for that, we need to say a little bit more about these guilds. Guilds then, in some way now, guilds then, in some ways, aren't that much different than the ones that we have now. Even though they were, even though the, even in all of these industries, these people were competitors. They worked together for the benefit of the entire industry, right? Some of the we we have that same kind of concept here today. We saw it recently with like the Screen Actors Guild or something like that. That whether you agree with their their stances or not doesn't matter. But they but they work together to collectively get the things that they that they're working for. Same is true in this space. Uh, even though they're competitors, they work for the benefit of the entire industry. It was a brotherhood or sisterhood. It was something you wanted to be a part of if you were going to be a significant player in those particular industries. Joining the guild got you special privileges. You could do business in certain areas that you couldn't if you weren't a guild member, things like that. But, like today, it also then requires you to agree to certain practices as well. Now, this is where the ancient guilds diverge quite a bit from our modern ones. The guilds of Thyatira centered themselves around big banquets and celebrations hosted in pagan temples. They began with large meals using food that was first sacrificed to their gods, so it was a big religious festival first. We're sacrificing this food to our gods, then we're going to host a big feast where all of the guild members are invited. It began that way, which, you know, that is what it is to itself, but during those meals, Servants would bring around giant bowls of wine, which is not the way we serve wine now. I can't imagine what a giant bowl of wine is like, but that's how they did it, uh, in which most people in the, were expected to indulge in liberally, right? So then naturally, as people begin to drink more and more of the bowl of wine, what you would expect to happen does. They, become, they begin to get more and more drunk, and the final part of each of these celebrations uh, would commence, right? You, you celebrate the gods with, with first with sacrifice, then with feasting, and then the after party, and your imagination can take that where it has to go. That after celebration would happen right at the table on the same couches you were eating at, which is kind of gross, um, 
and yet it was. That was an expected part of how the night would go when you're, when you're celebrating in these places inside of the guilds. It was through participation in these events that you secured your status within the guild and strengthened your commercial and financial security. Um, not only were you eating and doing all those other things in this place, this is where you're making business deals. This is where you're working out contracts. This is where you're, you're, you're jockeying for power within the guild and within the industry itself. It's how you got your brand out there. Playing the, it's, playing the game is how you acquired the accounts of the major players in your field. If you wanted to be part of the major trade networks of Thyatira, this is just something that was expected. Which then raises the question, in particular, for, in particular for a worshiper of God, what do you do if you live in Thyatira? Do you continue to be a member of these guilds? Because this, <clears throat> this is the way that you expand and grow your business. It's the way you gain more clients. It's the way you gain more social influence, more guild status. It's how you build your business. Or do you need to do something different? There are many scholars who offer this as the reason for, we, for why we find Lydia in Philippi and not in Thyatira. We don't know for sure, of course. But, but there's a possibility that she had defected from her guild and was attempting to build a different kind of business, which undoubtedly would make it harder for her to succeed compared to playing the game in Thyatira. One possible reason we find Lydia in Philippi is because she says, I see how business is done in Thyatira. I know how to sell purple cloth. I can do that. But I don't want to do it inside of this guild structure because it requires me to, to violate a number of my core beliefs. And so she, because we know that even before Paul comes to her, she's already a follower of God, right? Paul just helped guide her into a new space with that. I encourage you to hold on to Lydia for just a minute, and let's jump then to, a, to the second part, one person we're going to look at, which is in Luke 19. Luke 19. It goes like this. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house. So he came at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He's gone to be the guest of a sinner, they said. But Zacchaeus stood up and said, said, said to the Lord, Lord, look, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. You see, in Lydia's story, we see a woman who needed to leave the mainstream market to settle on her own to create a different kind of business that operated differently. She stays in the same industry, but does a different kind of business. Here, in the story, we have similarities. Zacchaeus is a tax collector, and like most tax collectors of the day, he was a cheat. Uh, we've talked about it a number of times around here. The How the Roman tax system worked is Rome would tell a particular tax collector, I need you to collect a thousand units of money. I don't know, right? Uh, and, and the tax collector had to make sure that by the end of whatever season they, that they were charged with, they had a thousand or whatever it was to pay back to Rome. 
Now, how the tax collector themselves made money, though, was by collecting more than that. So if Rome said, I need you to get 1,000, and the tax collector collected 1,500, uh, he kept 500, right? Which, if you were someone then paying tax, uh, you, it doesn't, it's not surprising why people didn't like tax collectors, because they would overcharge taxes and keep the rest for themselves. They'd become very wealthy while everyone else was starving. We see that Zacchaeus operated inside of that system. Zacchaeus operated like the rest of the tax collectors of the day. Now, Zacchaeus must have had some realization that he didn't like how his life was going. And apparently he was a little fella, right? Clearly not well liked. Um, he had heard about this Jesus guy and was interested, but he also knew that no one would make room for him in the crowd. He's like, I could go try to push my way forward, but I'm not going to make it, right? I'm little, I won't be able to see over anybody, and no one's going to let me up to the front. So i got to go climb a tree. He climbs a tree so that he can get a glimpse of Jesus as he's going to walk on the path in front of it. Now Jesus comes walking down the road, and he stops at the tree that Zacchaeus is in. Now I want to pause at this moment for a second. But even though it doesn't really have anything to do with where we're going to land in this message, I want us to take away a few things from, from that interaction. We know from our story that Zacchaeus has not been living a holy life. But don't miss how Jesus interacts with him. As someone who has not been, has been living a sinful life, as Zacchaeus admits, what would you expect a religious leader of the day to do when he meets an obvious sinner? I can tell you what Zacchaeus would have expected. Zacchaeus would have expected, if he got called out in, the, in this kind of way, for a religious leader to say, hey, Zach, bro, um, need you to get your life right. I can't be associated with someone like you. We even see in this story that people get grumpy about him going to eat there. But I'm going to be gracious, so I'm going to swing back this way in a month. If you can get these five things fixed, maybe we can talk then, right? Good luck. You would expect a religious leader of the day to try to correct him before he associated with him. But don't miss that, don't, but that's not what Jesus does, is it? In, instead, before Zacchaeus has changed anything in his life, Jesus looks at him and says, hey, let's go get dinner. You got to imagine that Zacchaeus is shocked. Like we said, the rest of the people who see them go grab dinner are shocked. What's Jesus doing going out with this guy? But it's so key in this story, and I can't go through this story without missing this point, without hitting this point, that Jesus approaches all of us in exactly the same way. It, the, our interactions with Jesus are not, should not be, hey, get it all right first and then you can be with me. That is not how we see it happen at any place in the Bible. It's not how we see it happen here in this story. Instead, it's saying wherever you are, whatever you're doing, let's grab dinner. So you don't fix yourself and then Jesus loves you. That's the wrong order. You meet Jesus and then he moves in you and all, you desire to do something different. It's exactly what we see in Zacchaeus' story. It's too important to miss. So, uh, just wanted to point that out. What we see in this story is that Jesus has dinner with Zacchaeus and his buddies, and it's in that meeting, it's in the meeting with Jesus, that Zacchaeus decides he needs to live his life differently. The grace Jesus showed him was so much more compelling than that condemnation of the crowd and the Pharisees that Zacchaeus says, I've got to do my entire life differently. And so as a result, Zacchaeus commits to being a different kind of tax collector. contrast to Lydia. Lydia leaves her position, but Zacchaeus does not. He stays in his job, but commits to doing it differently. He says, I'm going to still be a tax collector, but I'm not going to cheat anybody anymore. 
Actually, and if I have cheated anybody, I'm going to pay them back four times. I know that's not how tax collectors do things, but it's the way I'm going to do things in this industry from now on. And then finally, Matthew. Matthew 9, 9. Short passage. As Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And so Matthew got up and followed him. In these three different, in these three different stories, we have three different people, each with different responses, in, in, uh, different responses to Jesus' call in relation to their work life. Lydia... Becomes a new, uh, put, creates a new business outside of a system that she doesn't believe she can work in anymore. The system is too broken for her, and so she says, I'm going to take my industry and do it differently. I'm still going to sell purple cloth, but I'm not going to do it out of the guilds in the way that, because I don't want to be part of that garbage. Zacchaeus, see, when he meets Jesus, and says, I'm going to still be a tax collector. I'm not going to leave my job at all. I'm not going to leave my industry at all. I'm just going to do it differently, because I think that I can actually reform some of the things that we're doing here. It's awesome. Matthew, also a tax collector, has a different response than Zacchaeus. He says, I got to leave this thing. I can't, I can't both follow Jesus and be a tax collector anymore. Three different people, three different responses to that call. So why do we share those stories? You see, sometimes when I'm talking to someone about their faith life in regard to their work, they ask me if they need to leave their industry if they're going to be a faithful follower of Jesus. Some wonder if they need to join ministry somehow or work for a nonprofit or something like that. Other times, people wonder if they have to leave their current. Other times, wonder if they have to if they have to leave their current job uh, if they're going to follow Jesus. Meaning, they love their job, they love to keep working in that, but they but they're wrestling with how that goes. Others wonder how they can follow Jesus inside of their current system. As we've seen in these stories we looked at today, the Bible doesn't answer the question specifically of what you should do when you become a follower of Jesus in your current job. Becoming a follower of Jesus may mean you leave your current job, but it does not necessarily mean that. Zacchaeus doesn't change jobs at all. See, there's only one thing that runs through all three of those stories. When each of those people meet Jesus, or in this case, Paul's uh, teaching of Jesus in the case of Lydia, they're forced to wrestle with the established system intentionally. All three of those people, Lydia and Zacchaeus and Matthew, are forced to look at the system they're in and wrestle with it intentionally. For Lydia, she was looking at a very successful economic system. Thyatira was small but exceedingly rich. That's how you make money. It's just the system. I don't have to like it, but imagine how much good I could do with that money I make, though. Maybe some of you have wrestled with that before. Hey, I'm in an industry that, that has me inside of this system. I don't like it, but the good that I can do while working out of it is exponential. And you've got to wrestle with what that looks like. Maybe it's the same thing in your school system. Right? Hey, I'm in this system, and that's asking me to do certain things. Sometimes I'm good with it, sometimes I'm not. And you've got to wrestle with what that looks like. Can you continue within that system and still grow in your walk of faith? The hard part is, I wish I could say clearly, the Bible just says, do this. But as we've seen in the three stories, it doesn't. And so the, question, the answer is, maybe, and maybe not. 
But either way, it requires you to actively wrestle with it. Maybe you decide, like Lydia, the system is too busted, so I'll start a new thing. Whatever, you're, you're like, I feel confident enough in my industry that I can start a new thing, a new way of doing things somewhere else. But not everybody in Thyatira did that. We know for a fact that there were Christians living in Thyatira. We know that because of the book of Revelation, that John writes a letter to that particular city because there are still Christians there. That means some of the people, when they were looking at this dynamic, didn't respond the same way Lydia did. I, whether, I don't know exactly what they did in the midst of that space, but they had to wrestle with, I, I can stay here, and I'm, that means I'm going to have to wrestle with what it means to be a follower of God differently. And they did. Maybe, as you're wrestling with these things, you land in the same place that Zacchaeus does. I've been part of a broken system, and I've contributed that to that brokenness, but I can work to fix that. Maybe you're feeling, that, yes, I, I, might, I love my industry, I love my job, and I can see some things that are really pressing on my conscience, but I realize that I can do it differently on my own. I can be the change that I want to see. Might be an uphill battle, might cost you a little bit. In each of these cases, it costs these people, right? Lydia, it costs Lydia to leave Thyatira to go to Philippi. She's been successful there, but I cannot imagine it was easier for her to do it there than it would have been in Thyatira. There's a cost. We saw in Zacchaeus that when he decided to do things differently, he took on a cost, saying, I'm going to pay people back four times as much. We also know that if he's going to do it well, it is impossible for him to make as much money as he had before because just those two things don't work together. But he commits to being the change he wants to see. And there, and there may be some of you who are out there who, do, who, who are desiring to follow Jesus and you're going, I just don't see how I can do that in the current job that I'm in. Perhaps then your response is similar to Matthew's and just going, I don't know where Jesus is calling me or maybe I do, but I know he's calling me out into something different and then leaving is required. So often, as we look at Scripture, it doesn't tell us specifically what to do. It asks us to wrestle with these things and make the appropriate decision for ourselves. We can see that some people make decisions to stay in their industry. Some people make decisions to create new parts of their industry. Some people decide that they have to walk away altogether. All of those options are on the table. You see, one of the reasons that work is so difficult for us to be the same person in each is because, not, because it's the way that we support ourselves. We realize that, there's, that there are tangible and significant things that are tied to the work that we do. If we were to stop working, we wouldn't be able to feed our families or ourselves. We would lose shelter. We'd lose our homes. There's a lot of different things that we need to have, that we need to survive with that are tied to our jobs. And so the temptation then in that space is to say, I'm part of a system that I don't like. If I fight that system, it costs me. And that cost isn't abstract, it's tangible. And it's not just about me, it's about everybody who relies on me too. And so I think that's why so many of us wrestle with being a different person at work than we are at home. Because if I'm going to operate inside of this system, there's certain rules, there's certain things that are just expected, there's certain social norms or ways to do business to get ahead that just are. And as a single person, how do I change that? Right? If I want to survive in this industry, you just do these things, even if they don't feel good or feel right to you. I'm certain many of us, if not all of us, have felt that tension before, right? 
And so when we talk about how do we be an undivided person at work, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is or response is for you. The takeaway that I, can, that I take away from all three of the stories we've already hit, what we're called to is not leaving your job or finding a different job or any of those things. Those, maybe God is calling you to that, but what we're being called into specifically in each of these places is to do our best to connect with God, to wrestle with him through these questions, to see where he might be leading us or calling us and, and, and operate out of that is to continually be intentional about how we do our jobs and ask ourselves the question, where can I push? Where can I do things differently? Where do I need to sacrifice because it, the places that it will cost me so that I can either reform my industry or reform myself within it or whatever that might look like? I wonder what it would look like if, if collectively as Christians, we decide that no matter what industry we find ourselves in, we're gonna do it the best way we can, even if it costs. That, that we, we, there are these certain norms or things that we're just not going to be a part of anymore. Or we're going to start working to change, even if we have to na na navigate that for a little bit. I wonder how that would change the face of business. I wonder how that would change the face of the way that we interact with each other or care for each other. The way that we, the way that we work, the way that we offer vacation time, time off, mental health, emotional health, all of those things. I wonder what changes if we all take that seriously and wrestling how to follow God in the midst of those spaces, even if it's different than what the social norms or practices might be. I have a feeling that like we see in Thyatira or in Philippi, I would, I would love to know the follow-up on what happens in Zacchaeus' region uh, of the tax market. But in all of those spaces, what we see is that, that that if the church gets together on those things, the entirety, entire culture of the region shifts as well. People who are willing to take, up, take out and do the hard first steps pioneer the way into something greater later. And I think that's what we've been called to do in the undivided self at work. Will you pray with me? Father God, I just, we just come before you uh, in, a, in a space where we realize that uh, Many of us find ourselves in, in work situations in which knowing what to do, uh, knowing what the right thing to do is, is tricky sometimes. That, that it's not as clean cut or simple as we'd like it to be. That in order to survive in our particular industries, whatever they might be, there's certain things that we have to do and we're not sure how that interacts with the way that we follow you. God, we just pray that for each of us, in the book of James, it says, if anyone lacks wisdom, you give generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given. And we pray for that wisdom, that as we look at these complex situations in which we find ourselves, that your wisdom pulls, pulls through, and we can make the right choices even if they cost us. May we be people who are bold to say, hey, this is the thing that I feel like I need to do for me so that I, my conscience is clean as I work in this industry. Even if we're met with resistance or, or, or cost us, Lord, may, may we feel that your, your presence and wisdom guiding us in the midst of that so we can be people who change the industries that we're in. That we can be people who, 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 are, who show the world there can be a better way, even if it doesn't look uh, like the cutthroat world that we find ourselves in in this market. May our lives give a different example. Amen.